Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today's interview, I catch up with Megan Fagaldi, class of 2013, PH candidate for anatomy education at Indiana University. Megan will share with us how her curiosity and human how her curiosity in human anatomy sparked at WeGo set her on a path to teaching anatomy at the highest levels in academia. Joining us from the class of 2013 is Megan Fagaldi. Megan, tell us what you do. Hi, I am currently a third year PhD student in anatomy education. Um, so very detailed little niche here. Um, I am at Indiana University School of Medicine currently in Indianapolis. So Megan, when did your fascination with all things biology begin? Honestly, in high school at WeGo, I took anatomy and phys with Dr. Murphy my junior year. Um, and that was really the the point where I realized I loved it. You know, I had always been math and science oriented, but that really stuck out to me. It was a pivotal moment, you could say, in my education career. Um, so then going off to college, I was focused on health sciences, you know, physical therapy, stuff like that, and had to figure it all out. But I left WeGo and went to Marquette University and got my bachelor's in biomedical sciences. So I just really straight from high school then focused on the sciences. What, what were some of the classes that you took up at Marquette, like where it kind of confirmed that, you know what, I love this. I made the right choice. Um, sophomore year at Marquette, we all take a clinical human anatomy course. And that was very eye opening. I absolutely loved it. It was incredible. Um, and then because it was biomedical sciences, we got to focus and take pathology courses and pharmacology and genetics and a lot of classes that you really don't usually get an opportunity to take as an undergraduate. Um, but luckily we got to, and it was part of our curriculum and we had fun electives. I got to do um, cadaveric dissection as a sophomore and undergrad, which is almost unheard of. Very few universities allow undergraduates to dissect um, human donors. It's usually just looking at the ones that graduate students have completed already. So that was um, really started pushing me towards that direction because then I started TAing in anatomy as well. So when you, you said that it was a very eye-opening uh, class, that anatomy uh, class, what was it that really, that kind of set the hook for you there? Oh, it was, it was so fascinating to me, all the 
connections and how everything works. And really, if you think about it, our bodies are a piece of art. Um, and I think what was cool, especially once you start getting into the dissection level of things, is that you realize that we are just as unique on the inside as we are on the outside. You know, everyone has variations on the inside, a artery branching here where it's not branching in anybody else. And seeing all those differences on the inside was really, really cool. You, you mentioned that you were able to take a, a really cool variety of classes like pharmacology and uh, genetics. Were there any of those kind of offshoot classes within the biological sciences? Did anyone almost snag you to go into those as opposed to uh, anatomy? Uh, a little bit. I For a while, I actually applied to PA school for physician assistant um, and was headed that direction, which encompasses all things medicine, you know, pharmacology, genetics, all of it. Um, and then I was sitting down, I was too three quarters of the way through my master's degree in anatomy, sat down trying to think of what I was going to say when the interviewers asked me why I wanted to go to PA school. And I couldn't think of an answer. It's It was just something I had been working towards for so long. Um, so then I kind of just went and talked to my mentor at the time and had an epiphany and I flipped my life upside down and realized that anatomy was the only thing about medicine that I truly, truly loved and enjoyed doing um, and realized I enjoyed teaching more than I thought I would. You know, I'd always told myself I would never be a teacher. My mom's a teacher and I had no desire to do it, but I guess it was just elementary school I wasn't interested in because teaching medical students ended up being a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's it was it's in the blood. If it was it, it, if it was your mom. I know. I have I have, I have I have all these teachers in my family too. I just couldn't escape it. Couldn't escape it. I know you tried. But... I mean that was <laughs> so. You know that that must have been really difficult to pivot that way, where you had invested so much of your intellectual pursuit and then to, but then really kind of do the hard work to kind of figure out that this, your, your love was actually in this other space there. But I, I want to come back to, um, you know, you, you talked about how, what a unique experience that it was your, uh, how, I think you said cadaver dissection, cadavering? How do you say, I, I screw, I can't even right, read my own Yeah, the, the cadaveric dissection. Cadaveric, okay, cadaveric uh, dissection. When, when you do that, because that's something that not everyone probably has the ability to separate in their mind, which is I'm working on what used to be the husk of a human body yes. that was a mother, a father, a son, a daughter. And then, but you have to work at it in very, um, in, in very systemic ways to right. understand all that stuff. I, I was wondering if you can maybe kind of walk through the psychology of how uh, in that kind of medical student capacity, how are you able to kind of keep those two things separate? Right. It um, It's definitely a transition. Um, for some people, it's harder than others. It really just depends on the person. Um, but initially, it's, it's a little overwhelming. And then for me, eventually, I just had to wrap my head around the fact that this this is what they wanted. They donated their bodies and gave us this gift to learn. 
Um, because learning from an actual real human being is such an invaluable experience. It's something that you can't get from any model, from any textbook. It's just, it is its own learning tool. Um, and so for me, and this is what I tell my students that are struggling too, really, is that you just have to remind yourself that it's what they wanted and to not do your best and put in your full effort at learning everything you can from them is a disservice to the gift that they gave you. Um, and every year, I mean, every university I've been at so far does a memorial service every year for the donors. And that really helps to um, remember that they were people and that they still are people. And it's, it's a huge part of most anatomy labs. That really must be so liberating to the conscious of the student working on it to know that it would be a disservice not to really give your best to this opportunity that they're giving their their flesh in a way to be a learning opportunity to be a better healer in such a way. I love how you express that. That was perfect. Right. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. No. That was that was uh, that was brilliant. Um, okay. So you then so you graduated from Marquette. Where, did you go? And, you, I th- and maybe this was the the where you're saying the PA was that where you went to uh, Des Moines or what was the what was after uh, right. uh, Marquette? So yeah. after Marquette, I had struggled in college uh, actually for the first few years. Um, high school was easy for me, honestly. I got straight A's, no problem, piece of cake. Um, and I got to college and I had no idea how to study. <laughs> so. I was at Marquette taking these really difficult science courses and it was not going well. I was bombing exams. Um, so actually my sophomore year of undergrad, I got diagnosed with testing anxiety, which is uh, something that was really important for me. It opened a lot of, um, it shed a lot of light on things. You know, I had failed my AP exams to, in high school despite getting straight A's. So it really shined a lot of light, but Needless to say, I got to the end of undergrad and my GPA was not where it needed to be to apply to PA school, which is how I ended up going to Des Moines to get my master's because I needed to boost my GPA and show that I was capable of handling that graduate work. Um, So I went and got my master's in anatomy because it was the subject that I enjoyed doing. And it turns out that that weird winding path and life trying to beat me down is how I ended up figuring out that I wanted to do a PhD anyways. So it was, I don't know, that's one of the lessons I learned the hard way was that everything happens for a reason. And, you know, just because you're super smart in high school doesn't mean that college is going to be a cakewalk. (laughs) Now, that's interesting. You said that you had uh, a type of uh, uh, testing anxiety. Yep. And ironically, you're like, well, I'll just get a PhD then. <laughs> like there's, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of like work that goes in between there. But I was wondering if it, it how did you learn to manage the studying to conquer the assessment or did the assessment have to change in order for you to be more successful at it? Does that make sense? Like what, what was it? What was, how were you able to get over that, um, that hill? Right. uh, So I, um, got set up with a counselor. Um, it was free through the university, which was fantastic. Um, and then I was granted, testing accommodations by the university to basically put me in an environment that was better 
suited for someone with testing anxiety. So I was able to take my exams in a room by myself and I had time and a half. So if I needed to get up and pace around or talk out loud to myself, I could. And having that flexibility allowed it, my performance went right back to where it should have been. I started crushing my classes after I got my accommodations. Now, so then how did you then find your way from Des Moines to then uh, Indiana? Did did you, uh, how did you know to select that particular uh, program? Right. There are only a handful of anatomy education PhD programs in the country, as I'm sure you could assume it's a pretty um, narrowed field. Uh, So I spoke with my mentor in Des Moines, and he specifically suggested Indiana University. Um, He had had students come here before. It's very well known for its anatomy education program, at least within the anatomy world. And so then I just jumped online and I started doing research at who else had programs. That way I could apply to a handful of places and not put all my eggs in one basket. Um, And I ended up having to choose between Indiana University and University of Mississippi down in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, And I mean, the final decision ended up coming with proximity of family, Mm. Um, but also that the Mississippi program was kind of developed based on the Indiana program. The Indiana program was long established and very well known in the field. And I knew that if I came here and got trained by good people, that um, finding a job afterward wouldn't be overly difficult because of the reputation of the program that I'd be coming from. So what's the program like? Oh, it's great. Um, I'm in my third year. So the your first two years, you're taking classes and it's a mixture of graduate science courses and um, graduate level education courses. So you can learn how to do the education research that we do. Um, and then we're required to teach every semester as part of our employment contract. We get a stipend. Um, And we have to teach to get our stipend. So every semester you teach in a course. Um, I just finished my last class I ever have to take at the end of last semester. So I'm officially done with coursework, which is very exciting. Congrats. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And then now I am working on my dissertation research and teaching until I'm done. Uh, What's going to be your dissertation? I am doing my dissertation as long as my proposal gets accepted, but I would hope so, um, Mm -hmm. on anatomy preparedness work. So we are looking at students coming from undergrad to graduate programs such as medical school, physical therapy, PA, um, and occupational therapy, and we are evaluating their anatomy knowledge before they come in. What are they coming with? And are they coming with the level of knowledge that we expect them to? Because in graduate anatomy, we just kind of jump right in. There's no slow introduction. There's no time for that in graduate school. Um, and so if you don't have a good background or the background that we expect you to have, then it's going to be a little more difficult for you. You might struggle. So the idea is to find out which students don't have the background we expect them to 
And if we identify them, what can we do about it to prevent these students from failing? Um, and really, we've been applying it to the PA, PT, OT program here and also just branched out to the medical students. And also we have a pre-matriculation program here for students underrepresented in medicine. So we're using it there too. And we're getting some pretty good results so far. In, in, your, identifi- in your identification of gaps, it, do you, I mean, I, I would imagine it's a combination of, of both of these things. How much of it is actual content knowledge versus critical thinking and process and conceptual understanding of systems? Like what, what, where do you put more of your attention when you're looking at where they may be coming in with gaps or uh, maybe a surplus of, of skill in such a way? Right. So for this study, we're specifically focusing on content knowledge. Um, we are doing a little bit with things such as study strategies Um We surveyed the students and asked, you know, what topics do you feel you need to review on? What do you feel like you missed out or don't remember from undergrad? And one of the options was study strategies, and a lot of them did choose it, which is good, honestly, because studying for graduate school is completely different than studying for undergrad. Um, And we took those topics and we ended up making review videos for them. So that is something we're tackling it that way. But in terms of evaluating their knowledge, we're purely evaluating content knowledge. Now let's go to you as as the instructor uh, and the teacher. What what is what's it like to do? You have a, a certain autonomy to construct uh, your coursework or the the actual curriculum that you are making. How do you how did you get assigned your particular uh, class? Right. So e- each semester they have a list of the courses that are taught that semester that are anatomy related. Um, we're each required to teach at least once in gross anatomy, histology, and neuroanatomy. Um, So I've done all three of those. And so your assignment is based on which one of those three that you still have to complete. Um, You have to take the course before you can teach it, which is nice because then you have an understanding from the student perspective of what that course is like. Um, And then you're able to give the course director feedback of, hey, this is what I noticed as a student. So now as an instructor, maybe we can change this. Um, I don't have a lot of autonomy in terms of curriculum development. The courses have been long established. Uh, The autonomy comes more with creating my own lectures. You know, I I get to choose what I want to lecture on usually and... um, then put together my own slides and develop my own lecture. Um, And then a lot of it is just helping in lab and doing more the on the fly teaching as we typically refer to it. So when you say lecture, how long would that typically go on for in, in class? Cause you know, high school, we might go on for, five minutes, 10 minutes. I usually try not to be too loquacious when I go on, although I, I certainly could uh, with certain topics. Goodness well, knows if it's traditional, yeah. In traditional medical school fashion, um, the lectures are anywhere 50 minutes to an hour, sometimes two hours. So it's you're really just standing up there and talking about everything within that um, topic and you're covering all of it. 
students can ask questions and usually as a lecturer you want to put in certain intermissions within your lecture to give them opportunities to ask questions in case they don't feel comfortable interrupting you. Um, this year's looked different because we've been doing a lot of asynchronous lectures with COVID and not being able to be in person. Um, we've been recording our lectures ahead of time and posting them on the Canvas page um, for students to watch on their own time. And then when we meet in person, they have opportunities then to ask us questions after. What What's your favorite thing about teaching when when you're like in front of your students when it's not asynchronous uh and all of that what was what was a what was a, a good learning experience and one what, what was a, a a moment of success uh when you were uh, when you're in the classroom right um i mean it sounds cheesy but and everyone says it but as a teacher seeing them understand it right get that aha moment the light bulb goes off everyone loves that every person who teaches loves that and if they say they don't they're lying um and so that is really cool in a lecture hall it's a little different because you're standing up there and you have lights shining in your face usually and you have a whole sea of students in front of you um so for me getting them to either laugh at my jokes is fun. (laughs) But also, you know, I like to include my own personal tips and tricks into my lectures and make them personal, not just, um, I don't want it to be the same as reading a textbook. They could read a textbook on their own. I'm there to present it in a way that makes sense to me in hopes that that helps it make sense to them. Um, so seeing a student understand it in the same way I do is always a really cool thing. And then the challenge is when they don't understand it in the same way you do. And as an instructor, it's your responsibility to come up with a different way to explain it that works for them. Um, and it's definitely a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. I enjoy it. It keeps me on my toes. What is, so just to kind of rewind a little bit of just in your kind of intellectual curiosity of, of all things biology, do you have a favorite system or part of the functionality of the body that still captures your imagination that has an enchantment and mystery? I know you had mentioned before that you see it as a a canvas and it's like a piece of artwork that's unique uh, to each Mm -hmm. body. Uh, And I was wondering if, is there a particular, system or or organ or something within anatomy that you're just like, how, how is that even possible? Uh, what What is that? Right. Um, well, we do a lot of region-based anatomy in the graduate world. So I love the head and neck region, just head and neck in general. It's so condensed and so small and so intricate. Um, if you think about the amount of muscles that it takes for your face to move the way it does and for everyone to have different facial expressions, we all have the same muscles and yet we all make different facial expressions and all look unique, you know? Um, so that really fascinates me. And if I had to pick one organ that I think just is very odd and does odd things, (laughs) it would probably be the pancreas. It, it looks extremely ugly and it looks weird and yet it keeps you alive. You know, it does so many important things. So it's an That's, interesting uh, now, I, now I have to go read up on the, uh, the pancreas. <laughs> I know all these things. That's so great. Wind up a little bit now as the, as the students, now I'm backing up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious like about how did you figure out 
for lack of a better term, like a learning hack, you know, like, so, cause as an anatomy student, you have to have such command over terminology and vocabulary. What was like something that you learned to do better that kind of, kind of, again, kind of got you over uh, the, 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 the hill with, with your confidence with that. Cause there, I would imagine that in anatomy, there's just so much more terminology than any other kind of field in biology. Right. What, what was like kind of a successful tip that you were able to kind of uh, implement? Um, well, as part of my undergrad, I took an elective that was a medical terminology elective, and it was a one credit class. And it is one of the best classes I've ever taken because it broke down all of the terms you were learning into prefixes and suffixes and hmm. Um, basically all the root words within Latin and Greek. And so if you understand the root words and know those definitions, you can see a large term that you don't know what it is, but if you break it down, you can figure it out. Um, That was huge in learning the language of anatomy and truly understanding it and being able to figure it out. But beyond that, my my biggest tip and trick that I, I always pass this on to students too is just seeing the bigger picture with anatomy. There's so much going on. Um, It's very easy for for people to get lost in the details, right? Learning every single name of every single artery. And um, a lot of times we're focused on one region. So they forget to take a step back and look at the whole body as a whole. Um, So really taking the step back, seeing the whole thing for what it is and making the connections between the material just because block one is over doesn't mean you can forget everything you learned because the arteries from block one are attached to the arteries in block two, you know? So after you finish a a successful um, defense of your dissertation and, and all that, what's, what, what are the, what are the, What's the dream job prospect after that? Right. The dream job prospect is um, getting an academic position, getting a professorship. Um, So I would apply for assistant professor positions um, at really anywhere with a medical school or any sort of graduate medical program. Um, I found out through my time that I prefer working with graduate students. Um, I am qualified to work with anyone really, you know, undergraduate, graduate, but I really like the focus that graduate um, medical programs have, and I still get to have fun and dabble in the, the clinical applications of anatomy, which I enjoy doing. Is, is there a, a like a, 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 a nascent or kind of new technology that is going to make your job easier in the future in terms of uh, instruction is, are there new apps or simulators that are, are, that you have seen in in, in some type of prototype or that you're using now that you're like, this is going to really change the game. Right. There's, there's always new apps and simulators. Um, I go to our main anatomy conference every year, at least I have the past couple years. Um, And there's always people there with new technologies and new things. They have these dissection tables where you can take layers away and put layers back and move things around. It's, it's like a giant iPad, but as a table Um, and they have full donors on them, which are really cool. They are. um, And they have their place in education, but 
honestly, everything I've seen, and I think most anatomists would agree with me on this, there's there's no true replacement for the body donors and actual dissection that we get to do. Um, you get to see the variation. You get to have just a better understanding for the 3D relationships between these structures. And um, if anything, I think all the technology that's coming out is just going to be in association or be there to augment the learning that you're getting in the lab traditionally. And as you said, it just, it can't possibly recreate the actual human experience of, right. of knowing the body in, the, in that way. That's, that's so, that's right. so fascinating. Now there's, we, we're, I think there are going to be a lot of um, potential students that we have a lot of curious students that are, want to be in the medical field right. uh, and all of that. I was wondering if there's any type of text like book or podcast or documentary that you think is really would help kind of, as you say, like amplify the interest and the intrigue of this particular field. Do you have any like suggestions if it was a book that you that you would recommend to either an undergrad or an aspiring high school student, uh, a book, a, a film or a, a podcast? Right. Well, it's actually kind of funny you bring that up because the book I would recommend is the same one that Dr. Murphy recommended to his entire class when I was at WeGo. Um, he said we should all read Stiff by Mary Roach. Um, mm -hmm. It's a book about the curious lives of human cadavers is what it's called. And I say it's funny you brought it up because in your AP Lang class my senior year, we had to pick a nonfiction book and write a very long paper on it. Um, and that's the book I wrote my paper on. Hey, so, happy to help. <laughs> yep. Happy to help. There you go. You were the first person I had to write a big paper for and happened to be about cadavers. So that should have been, you know, some little. I'm glad I had Mary Roach on the list. She's great. She has such a unique uh, focus of her books. And she brings yeah. so much humor to it, which is it's something that's discussed a lot in medicine, you know, about how people use humor to deal with these difficult topics, to deal with treating patients or dissecting cadavers. You know, we were talking about how it's hard for people and it's a weird transition, but bringing humor to it is how a good amount of people cope. You know, they make jokes and they laugh and it might seem odd from the outside, but really they're just trying to make light of an odd situation that their brain's trying to cope with. Um, and Mary Roach does that phenomenally because in this book, you know, she's investigating all the different ways that cadavers are used if they get donated to science. And it, some of them are really odd, you know, they're from a while ago when things like that aren't really done anymore or, you know, she goes to a body farm, which there are still body farms out there. And um, that's where they put them in different situations. So the police can understand, you know, how long someone has been dead for or based on rates of decomp and whatnot. But she really brings a lot of humor into it. And it's it's a really good book. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I'm so happy that you you mentioned that. That was uh, that she is she is great. She also wrote. I, I want to say she also had a, a book called Gulp, maybe that dealt with the the whole yeah. process of eating. You know, so I, I think that was one that was after story. Too. Yeah, she's pretty funny. Um, and I mean, if I had to recommend another one, I just finished one a couple years ago called The Butchering Art. Um, 
I think it's by someone with the last name Fitzgerald. Um, but it's it's a whole history on Louis Pasteur and him trying to tell people that they need to sanitize and wash their hands because these little germs exist and no one wanted to believe him. (laughs) And they were all doing surgery with bare hands and dirty knives. And he was trying to change the face of medicine and he did it. Um, So that book was really fascinating too. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Well, Megan, I like uh, rounding up the interview with uh, the opportunity for the guest to share tips for success mm-hmm. with current Wildcats. What would you offer them? My tip for success would just be to never stop believing in yourself. Um, life finds a way of handing you failures, as mine has throughout the course of my academic career. Um, but you can fail exams, you know, you can fail exams and still be successful. And that's not going to stop you from, you know, reaching your dreams. And the other thing is to never be afraid to ask for help. I was terrified to ask for help. I thought it showed weakness. Um, and I figured out that when you ask for help, people are more than willing to give it and it doesn't make you weak. It just sets you up to be successful and do what you're capable of doing. Megan, I've learned so much. This was so fascinating. I'm, I'm really excited to hear the good news when uh, you uh, finish your dissertation. When When is the anticipated defense of it? Ooh, um, hopefully in about a year. Okay, well, we'll get well. You will get the good news, and I'll make sure that uh, uh, everyone knows uh, all about it when that happens. So, um, great. Well, Megan, thank you so much. Yep, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search. Wego Vox. That's Wego V O X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at Wego Places Podcast or on Twitter at Wego Places. Mm-hmm.